Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in D.C., covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Our producer, Ariana Dunham, is here to talk with me this week about a story that you've been working on along with a bunch of other reporters. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I know it's super in-depth. Can you just start and go right into it? Yeah, on Friday morning, University President Thomas LeBlanc had responded to some photos that resurfaced Thursday night. These pictures are from The Cherry Tree, which is GW's yearbook, and they were published in the 1960s. They depict students wearing blackface and KKK hoods, or Ku Klux Klan hoods. LeBlanc had condemned these photos and said racism has no place in GW, so we responded to this by looking through older editions of The Cherry Tree to see if we could find similar photos. How did you go back through these yearbooks and try to find a, find some more of these photos? Yes, yeah, so The Cherry Tree is archived online and that's the tool that we use to do this research. So from 1908 through 2016, every edition except for 1919 is online. And so we looked at everyone except for 1919 and and this, and this is, is a team of like, yeah, know, this like is multiple reporters. Yeah, yeah, I would say it was a dozen of us working on this, um, and multiple people were checking each volume. And what we had found were 14 photos depicting students in blackface, and four photos depicting students wearing KKK hoods. But there were also other like drawings and sketches that had racist imagery in them. Some photos that depicted like fake lynchings. There weren't real bodies, but they were lynchings. And other, like, more than 20 instances of cultural appropriation of other cultures. Um, Commonly, we saw Native American and Asian cultures being appropriated by students. When were these photos taken? The first instance of blackface we saw in these yearbooks were in 1914, and the last we saw were in 1964. Um, And the latest KKK hood we found was in 1977. So that's the main time period of those images. However, the drawings and appropriation pretty much extend from 1911 all the way through 1980. And with these these pictures, are they all at like similar types of events or are they kind of taken like at places throughout campus? Most of them appear to be at social gatherings and parties. Several of them are found on pages from Greek life, like featuring different fraternities and sororities, and many of them were at something called the Goat Show, and based on research that we did about the Goat Show, our understanding is that this was some sort of hazing event that was put on by the Junior Panhandle Association. Were you able to identify any of the people in these pictures? No, we were not able to definitively identify most of these people. In some cases, there were captions, but even in in those instances, sometimes they didn't use names or the names were vague. So, like, the ones that resurfaced on Thursday just said Ron and Bob. Can you describe the, the scenarios in which these pictures were taken or what it looks like in the pictures? Yeah, there's one photo in particular that is probably the most shocking that we found. It's from the 1950 yearbook and it depicts someone in blackface and he's in a cage and he's accompanied by what appears to be a slave master so it seems to be a reenactment of slave trade and that was found on the Sigma News feature in the yearbook. 
And so that's some kind of, like, social event. Yeah, that's what it appears to be. Um, the caption's really vague. It just says, one dime, the 20th of a dollar, which is in reference to the slave trade reenactment, but um, there's no real context clues that to suggest, like, where this is happening or why it's happening. Yeah, many of these were at Goat Show, as I mentioned, um, showing, you know, people on stage performing with blackface. Others seem to be at parties. One that we found was at an event called the Tacky Ball, unclear what that was, or, you know, like, if it was held by the university or just, you know, some private, like, student thing. Why is this topic being brought up now? Yeah, experts were saying that these photos could be being looked at because of what's happening in Virginia with Ralph Northam and the photos that were found of him in blackface in his yearbooks. And they were also saying that this is an opportunity to confront campus culture, what it may have been like in the past, and if there are any remnants of that still going on on campus now. Because even if we're not, we're no longer finding images like these in yearbooks, it doesn't necessarily mean that things aren't still happening today. So experts were saying that this is a good opportunity to just have a larger conversation about race on campus and to think about what values you want to have now as a university. Thanks for talking to us about this story. Yeah, I'll keep you updated. I'm here with staff writer Nia Larte to talk about a new mentorship program on the Mount Vernon campus. Thanks for coming on, Nia. Thanks for having me. What's happening with this new mentorship program and who's involved? There's a group of two RAs, Shelby Singleton and Lex Constantinitis, and then a resident director, Jacob Jean. And then an assistant program coordinator, Edward McKinley. And they're creating this, or they're starting this initiative to like just create a, help black people create a space and have a community on the Vern. A lot of them said that they know the Vern can be an isolating place, but then also if you add the element of like the upper underrepresented black community, and so much of that is on foggy, like you get to the Vern and you don't see many people and you feel like it's not your your home. So they just want to create more opportunities for black people to see each other and meet each other and just hang and chill. And what kinds of events are they hosting? So on January 20th, they had an event called Vern 101, How to Survive Being Black on the Vern. And it was a panel discussion. They had six former black Vernies and they just talked about different things. They talked about like finding a friend group, finding people to hang out with, um, the struggle of like going back and forth between Foggy to like connect with other black people and they had a really good turnout it was also open to foggy bottom residents so that they could see oh there's actually black people in the burn too don't forget about them and they're also they're having this thing called the black resident assembly they meet bi-weekly in west in a west hall room some weeks they have things planned out and other weeks it's just like they can come and do homework or um chill eat popcorn talk about being black just have fun with each other and are they planning on building upon this mentorship program with other groups of students? So Jacob Jean, the resident director, he said that like once they kind of establish or like see where they're going with the black kind of space or like helping with like to create a um, feeling of black meaning on the burn, they're going to like to other identity groups such as like creating LGBT space, um, Lex Constantinitis said that also she knows as a Jewish student living on the Vern that all the Shabbat dinners would be on Foggy, any event would be on Foggy, and there's nothing really there on the Vern. So like they'll also look to helping other groups right now, like they're gonna they're trying to focus like just getting this together and see like where they're going. It's not an official student organization yet, 
But she said that ne- maybe next semester, even though she won't be in Narnia and Laverne, but they'll meet with them and see, like, hey, what are you doing? Um, where are you trying to go with this? Because we want to keep it ongoing. Thanks for coming on, Nia, and be sure to keep us updated about this new mentorship program. Thanks for having me. I'm here with our sports editor, Barbara Alberts, to talk about baseball this season. Thanks for coming on, Barbara. Thanks for having me, Leah. Baseball season's upon us, and I'm super excited. Tell me, what's new this season? So there's a lot of turnover on the baseball team this season. They graduated a few key players from their lineup last season, um, and they have 15 new people joining the roster, I believe five transfers and 10 freshmen. So there's just been a lot of new faces on the field, a lot of different skill sets that they're bringing. So definitely a little bit of a different team that we're seeing from last year's squad. Who are we missing this year from last year's team? Isaiah Pester, he transferred into the program two years ago. He was drafted to the Yankees. Mark Osis was a four-year player for the team, definitely stepped up as their leadership guy his junior senior year out in the outfield, so he graduated. Robbie Metz also really held down um, second base for the team. He was one of their stronger infielders, and he also was drafted. So, you know, with those three players, you know, head coach Greg Ritchie mentioned that they were really fast. They had a lot of speed on the field, and they were really quick on their feet, but he also said that the new the new crop of guys who are coming in, he thinks are faster. He thinks have a little bit more speed under their belt, and um, which will change the way that they you know attack base running, stealing bases, things like that. So that's one area where he may have lost a little bit of of speed, but at the same time, he thinks that they're gaining more back. Yeah, and the guys that you were mentioning were a huge part of the infield and outfields last year. And with this year, how are the positions shaping up for defense? So Coach Richie spoke to me about this a little bit. Essentially, he said that Nate Fosnock, he's a junior on the team. He's been the team's shortstop for the last two seasons. So Coach Richie told me that his position is the only one where they have a, a permanent guy there. But everything else he said is up for grabs. I know with Robbie Metz leaving... Second base is wide open for anyone to take, and he pinned a few freshmen, actually. Like, you know, Cade Fergus is looking to be someone who's going to be starting the outfield for the team. So he said for the first couple games of the season, probably the first 12 to 15, you're going to see a lot of different people on the on the bags. You're going to see a lot of different people out in the outfield because they're still going to be trying to figure out what's the best combination. Like, what is the best group of guys out there you can work together? But it also depends on game situations. But because a lot of these guys who are going to be out there are going to be freshmen or, you know, seeing Division One level baseball for the first time, he's definitely going to be factoring in a little bit of time to transition. Yeah, and with these new players also, how is their bullpen shaping up? The pitching staff is a little bit different this year. The team has some pretty solid starters. Elliot Ramo and Brady Runner were two key anchors to the team's pitching staff last season, but they were injured early on, so they really didn't get to see a lot of playing time. But just in terms of people returning with a lot of experience, the team's starting pitching staff will have faces like Jarrett Edwards back on the mound or Nate Woods out there as well. And those are two guys who really stepped up for the team last season. But last season, the pitching staff was kind of struggling because they were using their bullpen as starters because of Ramo and Runner's injuries. So this year, I think Coach is a little bit more confident that they have a a more solid starting lineup or starting presence on the mound. But when it comes to the bullpen, when it comes to guys who are going to be coming in the middle innings or, you know, closing out, he said it's a little bit of a rotation right now. The bullpen is a little bit more youthful in the sense that they have a lot of freshmen in there as well as 
junior college transfers who, you know, they have a couple years of college baseball under their belts, but not necessarily Division One. So there is a difference in talent level there as well. So, so for now, he'll be throwing those guys in middle innings during weekday games, things like that, just to test them out, just to get their arms stronger, but also see what they're you know, bullpen is going to look like further down the line because right now he said it's a little bit up in the air until someone really kind of stands out for them um, in terms of who's going to be the closers and things like that. And are we seeing a lot of strong hitters on the team as well? You know, again, they did lose a little bit of power in the bats at, at the plate with the group of guys who aren't returning this year, but they have a solid core of strong hitters coming back. Stephen Barmakian, um, Dominic D'Alessandro, those two are really big hitters for the team. A lot of power at the plate, and they're going to be coming back as well. You know, because they do have, they are still trying to test out lineups, test out people in different positions, you know, out on the field, that definitely affects, you know, the batting order in terms of, like, who are you going to have, what pieces are you going to have available on offense you know, Richie doesn't really know yet who his, you know, leadoff hitter is going to be. He doesn't know um, the exact batting order at the moment because there are some unknowns that are still happening out in the field. Thanks for coming on, Barbara, and telling us about baseball this season. Thanks for having me, Leah. It's been a pleasure. So I'm here with our contributing culture editor, Catherine Abugazala, and you're working on a story this week about a new app that just came out. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's called Ship, and basically you swipe for your friends. So on Tinder, you swipe for yourself, but on Ship, you can get your roommates or your friends to decide who you match with. And how does it work? So you have a taken side and a single side. If you create your profile as taken, you get to also create a crew. So for myself, I'm taken and my profile picture is me and my boyfriend. I set up my crew and my roommate joined it. And so then everyone that I swipe with, she matches with. Everyone I swipe left on, she doesn't match with. And so she has a choice to choose people from the people that you swiped already. Yes, and anyone that I haven't seen yet, if they show up and she swipes right on them, her swipe gets precedence. So she still has some choice. She still has some choice, but my choices matter more. (laughs) (laughs) What did you like about the app? Like, what was the experience like? Uh, For one, I had a lot of fun. As the taken person, I get a little more priority over my roommate's matches than she does. She doesn't like swiping that much. So she gets to put the blame on me when a match goes wrong. So it was really fun to be able to kind of have a little hand in her love life, especially because I don't approve of most of her Tinder matches. Also, it made it kind of like a game. We both had a lot of fun because on your feed, it says who swiped on who. And if Olivia started any conversations with anyone, so we had a lot of fun texting in our group chat being like, oh my gosh, Olivia's talking to this guy, or why did you swipe left on this guy? And so that was really fun. Was there anything that you didn't like about the new app? There was nothing that I outwardly disliked, but there are some flaws in it. For one, Olivia doesn't have as much power as she maybe should. If she doesn't like a guy and I swipe right on him, she feels like she might be leading him on because it seems like she likes him. Also, there aren't that many guys on there. The first day, we were four days in when it was on the App Store, and there were only two guys in the district that we could swipe on. So we extended our radius to 200 miles, and then we learned there were only two guys in 200 miles that we could swipe on. So there are more people joining every day. They also don't have an Android app. And also, my boyfriend and I like swiping for Liv, but we do realize that this more appeals to girls. A lot of guys aren't going to, you know, ask their friends to swipe for them. Also, the bios are intense. Intense in what way? There's just so much information. I mean, you have star signs, you have 
your height, you have whether you drink, whether you smoke pot, how much you exercise. So it's a lot more information than, for example, Tinder. Exactly. Provides. And it's made by the same people that created Tinder. So they just put a lot more fields in there, which can be helpful if you want to know what you're looking for immediately. So you said it's more of like a game. I'm guessing your roommate hasn't found the love of her life yet. She has not found the love of her life, but that's because we're not really looking at ship as a match service per se. We like the fact that we can see what each other's doing, but also because there aren't that many people, we only check it every few days. Like if I'm bored and I think, oh, there might be new people on ship, there's usually like another 10 that we can swipe on. With other services like Tinder, you have more of a chance to get what you're looking for because there are a lot more people there and you don't have as much interaction with your friends, which kind of takes away from the romantic aspect. Thanks for talking to me about the new app. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editors Catherine Abogazala and Lindsay Pollan. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Cullen and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Old Studio. Special thanks to Barbara Alberts and Nia Larte for joining us. See you next week.